Super Talk Mississippi media production. Hi, this is Dr. Andy Barlow with the Chiropractic Physician Center of Tupelo and author of the number one best-selling book, The Code Breaker. Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? Then call my office at 662-844-1414 and order my new book, The Code Breaker. What's up, guys? Quick editor's note here before we get going into the normal Wednesday podcast. You're about to hear an intro that makes no sense, and like me cutting it out and back in would really kind of make it incoherent. But we have a normal Wednesday show today, a lot to get to, all kinds of different stuff. But I was I said in the intro we were going to have Bracken Ray, uh, former Andy Kennedy staffer, good friend of mine, knows a lot of hoops, on the podcast today, but his... Uh, his interview lasted about 45 minutes, and it was honestly way too good for me to bury it um, really amongst a podcast here that's already an hour long. So I put that as a basketball special standalone by itself. So if you go, I mean, everywhere you get your podcast is the exact same, but you will see two podcasts today. So I guess just double the content. But I didn't want to lump it all in one together. Because Bracken's, uh, if you like hoops and you like old Miss hoops, Bracken is about the most knowledgeable, how do I say about, he's the most knowledgeable basketball person I know from an in-game standpoint in particular. And I didn't want that to just get buried in an already hour-long podcast. So I put it by myself. Um, everything else I say in this podcast, aside from us having Bracken on at the end, is accurate, or I, I, I guess loosely accurate, depending on how seriously you take this podcast on a daily basis. But... um. So we'll have that. I'll still have Brody Miller, the LSU beat writer for The Athletic, on for you guys Thursday. But I just wanted to give you a quick heads up. That podcast with Bracken is available by itself. It is a Wednesday Hoop special. So the nonsense I spew at the beginning about us having Bracken Ray on at the end of the pod is not true. But this is our normal Wednesday show. Me and Colin get into a lot of different stuff, but just wanted to make a quick editor's note before you guys got thoroughly confused. So let's go. The Rebel Report from Super Talk Mississippi with Brian Scott Rippey and Colin Brister. Listen carefully. What's up on a Wednesday? I am Brian Scott Rippey. My co-conspirator, as always, is Colin Brister. We appreciate you hanging out with us on this February... I'm going to stop giving up on the date. November 13th edition of the Rebel Report podcast, something around there. Got a lot to get to today, maybe a little bit of football. Got some hoops as well. I I actually did not go to football availability yesterday. It was overlapped with basketball. I was leaving radio. I asked uh, esteemed colleague Nick Suss who we were getting in football, and he said Jason Pellerin, Austrian Robinson, and Derek Nix. And so I decided That's to go... some compelling storylines right there. I decided to go get dinner at uh, basketball instead. <laughs> that is some compelling storylines. That's just kind of where we're at with this whole thing. Um, well, I guess they're doing the senior thing, right? I mean, yeah, but like... I will say though, if you're a four year senior, if this is your if you if they if you went through here all four years and you didn't uh red shirt or anything, you came in sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. Yeah, Godspeed. That's a uh that's honestly a pretty brutal stretch. I uh we had Jalen Julius a couple of weeks ago and um I, I kinda said that out or a little like I said it out loud but really just kinda talking to myself and like Neil kind of looked up and was like, "Damn, that is uh, that is pretty pretty brutal stretch." I mean, that's no bowl games. That's the peak of the peak of the NCAA stuff. That's uh, 
I mean, credit to those kids for sticking it out for those four years. I know all of them did it. You know, you can probably name a couple off the top of your head. But, like, I, that that would be a rough college stretch. I know it happens everywhere across the country. There's plenty of bad teams, plenty of kids that don't go to bowl games. But it just feels like the tumultuous nature of which the program uh, has kind of, or the tumultuous things that it has endured over the last four years, those kids have caught pretty much squarely the brunt of it. Because at least, even through the NCAA stuff kind of getting louder in 15, they were good and they went to a Sugar Bowl. Yeah, and it really didn't even come out until the January after the Sugar Bowl. Yeah, that's also uh, that's also very true. It didn't really come out until after the Sugar Bowl. So, um, I, yeah, I don't know. That's a tough stretch. Anyway, Ole Miss, um, I guess we can do some hoops first. I'll have Bracken Ray on the podcast today. Full disclosure, we got off to a little bit late start recording. I, I have this weird habit in the mornings of where I don't have anything going on, and then when I wake up at 7.33, things pop up and everything ends up getting pushed so, back. So are you, are you getting up at like 7.30 every day now? Yeah, pretty much. I try not to, like, I mean, on, like, on some days when we don't have podcasts, and if I don't have anything, like, on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and if I don't have anything to, like, write or do in the mornings, I'll let myself sleep in. But I try to make it a habit to, like, kind of get up that that early. But, like, the last, like, it seems like 70% of the time when we set a recording time, I end up having something pop up, whether it's a, my dad calling me or something or, like, something in a, out of work. Uh We'll end up pushing back. Anyway, I've got Bracken. We'll record it after this. I'll stick him on today's podcast, and then we'll probably do Brody Miller. Is I'll uh, talk to him later this afternoon, and we'll, I'll probably just throw that up Thursday uh, for like an LSU preview. That way, it'll be kind of like some of the Sanderson Farms extra stuff I did. If any of you guys listen to that, so you'll have a Thursday podcast and a Friday podcast. Uh, I'm not a hero, but if you wanted to call me that, I wouldn't. I wouldn't tell you not to. So be look on, on the lookout for that too. But anyway. All of that to say, let's get to some basketball. Ole Miss beating a pretty screwed down, and what seemed like a Norfolk State was not bad. Uh, they're a much different team than that team that, uh, if you'll remember, beat Alabama in the NIT last year, which I believe was one of their biggest wins in program history, aside from uh, I, I remember, about a decade. They're the team that beat Missouri as a 15 seed, right? Yes, I was about to say that, and that was about, at this point, probably a little less than a decade ago, eight, nine years? Uh, I think 2012, yeah. Uh, yeah, which would make sense because that current the current coach has been there for seven uh, since the twenty thirteen fourteen season. So I imagine that guy, whoever was there before, who I don't know off the top of my head, parlayed that into some other gig after they beat Missouri. Yeah, I would. I would. I would venture to say that's accurate. I'll actually look that up while uh, while we're talking here. Anyway, I, uh, I I thought they were pretty. They were fairly athletic. They're much like I said. They're a much different team. Remember last year they they kind of put the final nail in. Avery Johnson's coffin at Alabama. That probably was happening anyway, but losing to Norfolk State removed any doubt in the first round of the NIT. Uh, not really the same team at all as that team that did that. I think they lost seven of their eight scores from that team. A bunch of newcomers, but they were fairly athletic, and they played pretty well defensively. And uh, they had a couple really good guards that were just kind of cutting Ole Miss up off the, off the bounce and a little bit in the two-man game in the first half. And then Ole Miss really flashed zo- their zone for the first time this year. They do that... 1-3-1 one, one kind of token half-court trap that they fall back into a 2-3. You didn't see that at all. You saw it a lot last year, and uh, there honestly were a lot of reasons they needed to play zone last year. They should be a better man-to-man defensive team this year. But they went to that in the second half, and uh, Norfolk State wasn't really able to drive the ball past them and really over them like they were in the first half. That was kind of the difference in the game. I think Norfolk State's only scored like six points in the final seven minutes of the game. They kind of kept it at arm's length. I think it was a five-point game with ten minutes to go, but 
Ole Miss struggled a little bit again offensively in some respects, but kind of slogged through it to a 68-55 win. Overall, I thought they played pretty well in spots. They uh, they certainly guarded well, I thought, in the second half. And then you saw Brian Tyree sort of get it going. He had 21 points on 8 of 18 shooting. Uh, Schuler had 21, I believe. And then K.J. Buffin led the team in scoring again with 23 points. Yeah, yeah, they uh, – Brian got off the little slow start. He makes his first two shots and then, you know, has a tough night in the field. I think, you know, a lot of people will – Look at the, the final score, and they got all that probably just played it pretty well. But you mentioned it. Norfolk State's a good basketball team. They're extremely well coached. Uh, they play extremely hard. They play good defense, frankly. Uh, and, you know, they, they got out of there with a win. They got out of there with a win that helps their net by, uh, from a scoring margin standpoint. They won by more than 10. So, um, you know, it, it, I don't think there's many negatives to take away from last night for sure. Yeah, I mean, that was a comp- – like, Arkansas State was okay, but really just not a good team. That was a confident basketball team. Uh, you mentioned Tyree. He was a lot more aggressive getting to the rim in the opener. Kermit Davis pointed out that he was settling for a lot of perimeter jump shots. And while Tyree is a capable three-point shooter and should definitely shoot, like, when it, when it becomes open and step in threes and kind of get out and transition, but the best part of his game is kind of 17, 18 feet and in – when he's kind of setting that up by being aggressive and getting to the rim. In a day and age where the mid-range game has kind of been value, devalued by the analytics nerds, two points is still two points. And with Tyree... We don't appreciate being called nerd, Drip. Well, he, the point being is like, I, I listened to a, a Kevin Durant went on a podcast a while back, and I don't remember what it is uh, talking about, because Kevin Durant has one of the better mid-range games in the NBA. Uh, really probably one of the more underrated parts about how he plays basketball. Tyree, I'm not making a Kevin Durant comparison because, you know, that'd be laughable for 10 different reasons, but Tyree has one of the better mid-range games in the SEC and maybe even the country, and so like he's at his best when he's getting to the rim and attacking and kind of setting that up, setting that mid-range game up by slashing to the rim and kind of keeping the defenders on their heels. I say all that to say in an area where mid-range has kind of been devalued and you have teams like the Rockets and the 18 Brooklyn Nets either shooting a three or getting a layup. Like two points is two points if you're if it's automatic, and Brian Tyree is pretty damn close to automatic when he's shooting that as when he's dribbling into about a 15, 17 foot jump shot. So a lot better from him. Obviously, that was really just kind of indicative of a, probably a slow start and a, or an off game to a, I guess a slow start to the season. As Kermit Davis kind of mentioned after the first game, he just said the last person I'm worried about on this basketball team is Brian Tyree, and he appeared to be getting back on track. Uh, K.J. Buffin's a monster, and I, I guess I kind of buried the lead here uh, when I was talking about the Brody Miller thing. I've got Bracken Ray on the pod today. You'll hear this in a little bit. Um, I'm kind of losing my mind here. Did I say that five minutes ago? You did. Okay, yeah. So we'll get into that with Bracken some. Bracken was a GA under Andy Kennedy, so he's got a couple of AK stories. He knows basketball. He's one of a... Uh, I was actually his. I need you to ask him about uh, the, the 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 time AK tried to fight a man in Starkville. I will definitely ask him about that. Like I guess I was setting all of that up at the beginning of the podcast to say that normally when we put an interview in, we record the podcast afterward, and I've already done it. As of this time, I have not talked to Bracken. I'll get to him a little bit after that, but we'll get into some AK stuff and some other things. I'm sure uh, Bracken, really smart guy, knows basketball. Uh, honestly, I probably should have done this earlier in le- leading into the season, but I was just kind of texting him about some random basketball stuff last week, and he was like, if you ever need someone to talk hoops on the pod, let me know. 
I was like, honestly, that's a great idea. I don't know why I didn't think of it. So you can get them all once a week. Yeah, I know. I mean, it, it definitely won't be the last time. So we've got that. Uh, I'm sure it'll be a uh, really good interview. I was actually Bracken's backup uh, when I was a uh, senior in high school, and we had that whole. Uh, he must have been a stud then. Yeah, if they were, if he was holding me off the court, uh, then obviously the kid had to be pretty good. Not sure how he didn't play in college. But anyway, we ever, we ever told the story on the podcast? No, but I, I guarantee about eighty five percent of the people listening <laughs> to this podcast have heard it in some form or another because that story has been tired and exhausted through the years. I can promise you, you that. Me, you told me at one point there was video out there. Have you have you gotten it? Oh uh, yeah. So honestly, this is actually kind of funny. What happened was, and I, I we're going off on a tangent. I don't really give a shit. What happened was, uh, I had it. I had it in high in high school. Like we had like a typical kind of like Jackson private school stuff. We had all of our game tapes uh, where the parents could buy them afterwards, and it was synced up to our radio broadcast. Yeah. And so I had it, and one night coming back from the dorm, coming back from like a night out in the dorm, I put it in my PlayStation to play for some people because they didn't believe me. And my PlayStation just kind of, uh, I guess, uh, had like a brain fart. And scratched it all up, so it stopped. Moving. Oh man! But then my mom, for Christmas about two years ago, uh, you know, I'm like past like the Santa age of getting Christmas presents, but I, I had like a stocking, and I had these two CDs in my stocking, and I was like, who the hell buys CDs anymore? But she had gone to the guy and got like two or three extra copies of it, so it is back again. <laughs> Maybe I'll have to put that out on the internet someday because it's actually. I wonder like, if you can make money off of it. Uh, maybe so. I don't know. I might have to give the guy who shot the video credit and the radio guy, and I'd like to keep all the money for myself. So I'll, uh, I'll have to check the legality of all that. I might have to put that out on the Internet soon. It, it's uh, probably too good not to share. Anyway, we've got Bracken on. We'll talk some hoops. But before I got off on the wild tangent, what I was going to say what I was going to ask Bracken about is K.J. Buffin, and he pointed this out last night, particularly in the high post, is becoming almost automatic offense. And he's really... Like, he had the body frame when he came into school as, like, your cookie-cutter four-man that was really going to do well in the way, really, the way most modern four-men play basketball in this day and age, but particularly with the kind of style of play Kermit Davis wants to play. And you're kind of seeing that come to fruition here. Um, He's added, you know, 15, 20 pounds of muscle, as we've talked about. Uh, That may be a little generous. It's probably 10 to 15. But, like, he's scoring through contact. He's got really good touch around the rim. Uh, he's becoming a force. And I, I don't think it's crazy to think, um, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but he seems like a guy with the way he's playing that could be a 15, 16, and 8 guy even when you get into conference play. Yeah, he, he's a guy that's really just taking the game to the next level. Uh, I'm interested to see how they're going to handle that when, when Henson comes back. I feel like they're going to let him play some five stuff. Um, and, and he's a guy that can stretch the floor. He, he's He's a lot more comfortable in that mid-range game where I don't think he was even comfortable there last year. And if he's comfortable from the elbow and, you know, a little bit farther back, he's going to be a tough, tough matchup. He's always been proficient in, in getting to the rim and finishing at the rim. and uh, He's always been a really good defender and rebounder, too. So uh, his game is really certainly uh, starting to take off. And I thought the comparison to P.J. Washington as to what they want him to be was extremely good last night. Yeah, so that was what I was kind of about to get into. Um, you mentioned it. So you mentioned like him not being a little timid last year. I think that's one more comp, like uh, uh, added confidence. And two, uh, Kermit Davis did say after the game he's kind of telling Buffin to emulate P.J. Washington a little bit. And I don't know if 
like everyone out there knows who that is. But that was a guy. He played at Kentucky last year. He's now really, honestly, uh, crushing it as a uh, power forward as rookie for the Charlotte Hornets, who were supposed to be the worst team in the NBA and probably not even really close to the worst team in the NBA. And have gotten off to kind of a surprisingly not awful start, I guess would be the best way to describe that. And that's largely because of him. But he's a big, powerful, scoring power forward uh, that rebounds really well, has good touch, and has pretty good uh, pretty good ball skills for a big man. And that's kind of what uh, Kermit Davis wants K.J. Buffin to emulate. And he brought that up after the game last night. I think that's a pretty good comp as well. Obviously, K.J. Buffin is not P.J. Washington. But like in terms of a guy that you would... He would you would want him to try to model his game after. That's a uh, that is a pretty accurate example. So on the off chance that all of you diehard NBA fans that surely listen to this podcast ever find yourself watching a Charlotte Hornets game, that is kind of what they want KJ Buffin to be. Anyway, uh, you mentioned the uh, you mentioned kind of the uh, what are they going to do when Blake Henson comes back? Kermit Davis got asked that question um, last night, and this is kind of speaks to how versatile this team could potentially be this year. Is when Blake Henson comes back, and they hope to get him cleared for contact in the next week, and probably have him back by the end of the month, um, you know, maybe that Seattle game before they go play Memphis uh, n- early next week is a possibility. They might have him cleared by the end of this week. Uh, that may be a little ambitious. Even Memphis may be a little ambitious. I think until they actually get him cleared for contact, they won't know for sure. But when he does come back, what are you going to do at the four spot? And I think you could do a number of different things because I do think there are a little there are times where you can play obviously kind of a traditional lineup where you have C or Hunter at the five, Buffin at the four, and you can play Henson at the three some too. But I think one of the lineups that Kermit Davis has kind of had uh, festering in his brain a little bit, really from the start of the off season, and probably honestly at times last year though he knew he couldn't do it last year because they weren't strong enough, is Buffin at the five. Henson at the four, and then going with the smaller lineup, like, I don't know, like Crowley, Tyree, Schuler, you know, something like that. I guess you could go Rodriguez out there at the three as well if you didn't want to be as small. Anyway, but kind of go with the small ball lineup that I think, because he mentioned, Kermit Davis mentioned this at times last year, talking about how he thinks maybe, uh, he thinks Buffin and maybe Blake could go for small stretches in the post, but didn't think they were kind of physically equipped to handle that yet and now with Buffett in particular with an offseason of getting stronger it definitely is so I think you're going to see that lineup a lot and I think that's two kind of the reasons for that are twofold is one and it's really early you're only two games in but you're not really getting the kind of scoring production from C and Hunter and the little bit that Carlos Curry played but namely those first two that maybe you would have liked to have gotten. Uh, they, I thought they, they, they've. De- I think overall through two games, I'd give them about a B in terms of uh, rebounding and rim protecting, and probably a C plus in terms of how they played on the offensive end. There have just been times early in the year where Hadim hasn't really kind of gone up with the type of uh, emphaticness, strength you need to finish through contact at this level of basketball, and he is a guy that has played some at this level before he went to JUCO. But I think that'll probably come in time. But, you know, until they kind of grow into their own, I think you might see a lot of that small lineup with KJ at the 5 and Blake at the 4. Because aside from, you know, having both of them on the floor and them being two of your best players, one of the reasons for that is they're two older guys that both know how to run offense and have both been through the rigors of the SEC. 
And I, I think that's a line that you're going to see a lot as they kind of try to get Sammy Hunter and Kadeem C adjusted and kind of, I guess, in a groove for the lack of a better word. Yeah, they, they, Sammy Hunter and, and, and C, are, they're going to play better, but uh, not 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 great starts for either one of those guys, frankly. Uh, Luis Rodriguez was better last night. That's a good sign for Ole Miss. I thought Austin Crowley played well again. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, this, this team is pretty deep. They're, they're going to be able to do a lot of different things, especially when Henson gets back. Uh, KJ's big enough to handle the final position in the SEC, whereas maybe a year ago he wasn't big enough to handle that. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of this. The tournament's able to do a lot of different things from a versatility standpoint, and that's only going to benefit them going forward. Yeah, I agree with all that. Your mic kind of went haywire there for a second. I don't know what the hell that was. It's like the computer farted. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I don't know. We do a lot of different things on this podcast. Yeah, this studio is a little bit, uh, like the equipment in it is like a, just a little bit old. And so I'm like constantly making sure the volume level's right. I know we've had like complaints about in the past. So if I get it too loud, it starts making weird robotic noises. So I'm going to steer away from that. Anyway, I agree with all of that. Um, yeah, for the most part, I don't think Hunter and C, like I don't think it's been bad by any stretch. But I think there's probably be, uh, particularly on the offensive end, been a little bit, a uh, little bit left to be desired because they're already a better rim protecting team than they were last year. I mean, sure. with respect to Dominic Olenichek having a uh, back to the basket center that doesn't really rebound or score, is uh, and as an average rim protector, really just doesn't bring a whole lot to the table. I uh, I was I watched Florida State season opener against Pitt. I was just kind of bored at my house one night. And had that on, and they—I uh, I thought it was kind of humorous. The announcers mentioned that uh, Florida State was a little bit limited because they were without Olenichek and one other player. And I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> so, Not missing much. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily know about that. Although, uh, if you want some guy to lead your basketball team off the bus, it's probably Dom. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He looks the part. But anyway, I don't. I mean, he did some. I nice think he things. actually played a decent amount against Florida Sunday. Look, I guess if, if if I don't really pretend to know what type of uh, what type of offensive style that uh, Leonard Hamilton runs, maybe that's something I, I should ask. Is Bracken. he the youngest seventy year old man ever? Yeah, he does. He looks like he's probably what forty five, fifty. I would say fifty. If, if you told me to guess his age, I would have ballparked it at fifty eight, and that would have felt high. He's seventy. I'm pulling up Dom's numbers from Sunday. Let's see. Dom played seven minutes. And grabbed two rebounds and got him two fouls. Okay, but see, okay, that's fine. And say like, and, it, and so presumably in seven to what, ten, eleven minutes of action a night, maybe that goes up to fifteen or so. If he can defend okay and grab a couple of rebounds, that's like a decent role for him because one, he's going to wear somebody's ass out on the opposing block, even if he's, there's no threat to score, just being by that physical of a body. But like. The problem with Ole Miss was is they needed him to be a hell of a lot more than that, and that's where yeah. you kind of, that's where the kind of problem became because I don't think Dom is more than that. Yeah, um, Ole Miss was having to ask him to do things he couldn't do. Yeah, or just it's 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 almost it's it, it's more so I think for long like asking him to do that for longer stretches, which he's just not a guy that can do that. He's a bench center that can kind of come in and be a large body that kind of gives you. I mean, this isn't a very good skill set comparison. But uh, the uh, Boban Bogdanovich, you know what I'm talking about? He's like 7'7". Yeah. Seven, seven. He comes in and is just bigger than everyone else for like, 50, like 12 to 15 minutes a night in an NBA game and grabs a couple rebounds, isn't like a 200% defensive liability. He's okay. Grabs a couple rebounds and some putbacks. Kind of like that. But asking Don to be much more than that is uh, 
is probably not conducive to winning. And I guess that's kind of indicative, I know, kind of speaks to the job Kermit Davis did to get that group of kind of misfit parts to the NCAA tournament. Anyway, we've kind of gone off on a, uh, we've kind of gone rambling here today early. But point being, all of that to say, I, I do think that you're going to see a lot of that small ball Henson Buffin lineup together uh, until. They work C and uh, and and, uh, and Hunter in, and I think you're going to see a bunch of it regardless throughout the uh, whole year. I think that's something Kermit Davis is excited about using. I think it's something that Henson and Buffin are excited about doing because they're you know two of the like they're probably they're two like each other's closest friend on the team. I don't want to like speak for them and like kind of get clickish, but they seem to be like they're very close. They came in together. They both had to kind of endure the rigors of the SEC together uh, out of necessity last year. Uh, which I think helped them a lot because I, I think kind of getting humbled a little bit and I, I guess getting a taste of what like it's actually required to be a good SEC player uh, probably helped them a lot. And I thought they fared pretty well for the most part last year. Uh, Buffin kind of floated around at times and, and Henson hit a wall after that state game uh, in early January. But they played pretty well, especially. And I think uh, obviously they're going to take a pretty big steps as players this year. You've already seen that through two games of Buffin. It'll be interesting to see what Henson looks like once he gets on the floor and kind of in game shape. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's going to take Henson a minute to uh, to get into game shape, like you mentioned. Um, hopefully, for Ole Miss's sake, he, he's ready to go full full go by SEC play, and I think Ole Miss will be a pretty potent offense um, by that point. Real quick, before we jump into football, what do you make of this Astros thing? Yeah, I was actually going to get to that. Do you want to do football? I, I, I was I had that written down as the topic today. Do you want to get to football or do you want to do that first? I don't really care. Uh, your call. Um, let's go football and then finish with the Astros thing. Okay. Uh, because I, 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 and with all due respect, I, I'm not sure how much time is going to be dedicated to this football this week. But Ole Miss does have a game this week. They play LSU. Um, I'll have Brody yeah, Miller on for a preview on Thursday. Look. I think this even Ole Miss defense deserves a lot of credit for how they played this year, particularly on the back end. This younger secondary has not looked as uh, as, as bad as it did uh, at times early in the year, and I think that's uh, just a natural product of some of these younger guys getting better. But I think LSU is going to pretty much be able to name the score. This is kind of a whole different beast offensively, and I think that's kind of a two-part issue because one, the defense is going to be on the field the ton because I don't see the offense moving the ball at all. Yeah, I, I do want LSU starting tackles are out. I wonder if that matters at all. I mean, I think it matters a little bit. Ole Miss's defensive line has played well this year, so they maybe get after Burrow a little bit. Just uh, yeah, I mean, with, with the offensive tackles out, I'm not sure how how much you know that did LSU going to be able to hold off the pass rush consistently. But it's a young Ole Miss secondary. Can they consistently hold up versus Joe Burrow? I, I kind of doubt it. As much as they're going to be on the field, so just yeah. I, I don't really know how this game stays close into the fourth or the third quarter. Yeah, I don't. That's kind of where I'm at a loss too, because I don't see how they move the ball. I think the defense is going to be on the field a lot, and I think that's. Uh, look, I mean, this isn't going to be close. I was a little. I was honestly the line opened at 21. I was a little surprised by that. I thought that was kind of low. Maybe it's kind of an LSU hangover thing because they came off literally the biggest win of the college football season, bar none. Uh, maybe that's just a, a product of, of them maybe being a little bit hungover. You mentioned having the two tackles out. I think there's actually a potential a third lineman will be out. If I'm not mistaken, we'll get to that with Birdie tomorrow. But I, I really don't see how Ole Miss keeps this close for very long. I mean, I mean they got to score. 
Well, okay. There, therein lies the issue, I would say. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Hey, this offense is going to have to do something it hasn't done all year. It's going to have to score a lot of points. Yeah. And, I mean, LSU is vulnerable in the secondary, but I've, just, I've seen nothing in this offense that gives you any hope that they can attack LSU's secondary. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, though, I know Alabama kind of hurts them in the secondary. LSU still got really good players, and against this receiving core, I, I, I don't see them having much trouble. Well, yeah, because they're not going to throw the football one. But, I mean, yeah, that, that, look, Alabama's got the best receiver uh, trio in the country. Um, and not even close. They may have the three of the top five receivers in the country, frankly. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's, I, I, I don't mean to be cynical, but how this game's close in the third quarter, I'll be kind of surprised. Yeah, and then it just – so I don't know if you want to get to this or not, but I had a I had this texted to me last night that uh, – I'll be careful here. Look, okay, I mean, the first part is really not that bad. I had a couple people text me a screenshot. Miles Battle apparently posted, like, his goodbye in terms that he was transferring on social media. It looked like Instagram and then deleted it. That, that 100% happened. Yeah, no, no, I, but I, I guess I, where I said I'd be careful, um, that's, one, not surprising, um, and, two, I, I would be, frankly, I would, from everything I've kind of been, I guess, hearing, uh, putting pieces together, I would be shocked if he were the only one at that position group. Is that fair? Um, I wouldn't even say shocked. It's going to happen. There, there are going to be multiple transfers at the receiver position because, I mean, one, some guys haven't developed like they need to, but two, how in the world do you want to play offense in this, in this or how do you want to play in this offense if you're a receiver? Yeah, I I, 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 I I don't really blame them there either. Battle is kind of different. Battle, Battle might be the perfect test case for this in some senses because they were at, he had some moments last year under Phil Longo where he looked like, okay, that's why, I mean, you kind of thought this is why he was going to be a guy that really came along this year and that it just hasn't happened. So is he more towards the he hasn't developed or is he more towards the Rich Rod virus that he caught? It can, it can, it can be both, right? I think both are true. Um, but he's gone, I, I would venture to say, you don't put that out on Instagram and have that picture ready to go, even if you delete it, if you're not transferring. Um, I guess we can get clarity on that you know, later in the week. But I expect him to go. I expect some more receivers to transfer. And frankly, I don't know how Ole Miss recruits receivers to replace these guys either. So that's another part of this. And I, uh, I was talking with Richard yesterday uh, before radio, and we've had Cole Kublik on our, our radio show a couple times. And uh, apparently, he did uh, Chase and Neil's podcast yesterday. Uh, I don't know if you listened to that. I, I have not listened. I didn't listen to it, but I, I, I can kind of guess how it go. But guess how it went. Excuse me, based how it is gone on our radio show. And he is firmly in the Plumley camp. And I think Cole is really good on TV. I, I don't know him. I, I've met him in passing a couple times. But he's really good on TV. He's a really smart and sharp guy. He knows 10,000 times more football than I could ever pretend. But I don't know what the hell he's talking about when it comes to Plumlee. I don't get it at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he's a believer in, in his arm strength and, and, you know, his progression as a quarterback. And look, like you said, he knows more football than we'll ever know. Um, he's probably forgotten more than we'll ever know. But, um, yeah, uh, look, can John Wright Plumlee be an SEC-level quarterback? Maybe. I don't know what someone's watching this year that gives you that inclination. Now, look, kids develop, kids get better all the time. It happens. 
but I don't know how you watch what you see this year and declare that right now he's going to be a, a, a competent SEC quarterback. Yeah, I, I don't get it at all. And the reason I bring up Plumlee, I'm not picking on the kid. No. Because, I mean, I, th- I mean, look, his feet are electric. He's a dynamic athlete, and that's kind of part of uh, part of uh, Cole Kubik's argument. And probably, I guess, one of the part with I could probably align myself in terms of thinking with most is that if you don't do some things well, you can't coach that dynamic speed. And aside from the speed, he really does have pretty good vision in terms of how to set some oh, yeah. of those read options up. And really, just right vision as a run, like a running back type vision, running the football. He's really good at doing that. I just don't ever see this offense working long term like this, uh, with the with him being that one dimensional, not being able to throw the ball. Now he's not being done any favors by the way the offense is being called, not. and not being able to drop back and throw it very often because they didn't even really let Corral drop back and throw it that often when he did play. But at the same time, I'm not. I'm, I'm not sure he's necessarily capable of doing that. But let me ask you. But you've, I, been I, a, you've been around the kid. Is he tall enough to see over the line? Because that's been a discussion as to why they roll him out so much. You're asking me if someone is tall enough to see something. <laughs> I guess I'm asking how tall is the kid. Uh, he's not six two like they list. The, he's listed at six two. I think he's listed at 6'1 or 6'2. Uh, no, I would venture to say he's not 6'1 or 6'2, but I'm not even sure in today's football, again, I'm not even sure if that matters as much. I just don't think he can throw accurate. I mean, there's some of those short out routes and slants and stuff where he's missing it by 6, 7 feet and skipping the ball into the ground. That's what I yeah. That's where I mean, there were Kubrick. Where he, where whatever he sees and I see, there's some kind of disconnect there. Because I've seen him throw balls into the sidelines that looks like the varsity blues thing, where he knocks the guy off the horse, throwing the ball away. I've seen him skip balls in the dirt. That's where I. That's what I don't get. That is alarming to me. Yeah, I mean accuracy is certainly an issue. Um, you know, from an arm strength perspective, and look, this is not a you know an apt comparison, but he throws the heck out of a baseball. Uh, you know, I, I, I was told that he pitched it was 90 to 91 consistently in high school. So he's got arm strength. I don't know what the, the real issues is as far as accuracy and whatnot with, with throwing a football. But uh, there's certainly some issues there. Um, and they're going to have to be addressed. And that's where this that's where this spring becomes interesting, man, because if he's the starting quarterback, you really need him to go through spring and not go be a baseball player. But I think there's an opportunity for him to play a lot on this baseball team. I think if he's, again, we've disagreed agreed to disagree on this, but I think if he is named the starting quarterback, he quits baseball. We'll uh, see. But, yeah, yes, I, we'll see on that. But I bring all of that up to say is you had the the battle deal. You would, I, I'm going to I go out on a limb here and say more, there, more are coming. You're losing talented receivers in part one, because his offense makes no sense, but I think it's partly because of the way of who they've decided. Like You can't tell me there's no part of this, and whether they like, because I do think Plumlee has some natural leadership qualities at which the team gravitates to him more, and I don't necessarily mean that as Knuckle Corral. Plumlee's just a really, really charismatic dude. I mean, he's like the kid your mom wishes you were, and a smart guy, like the piano, all that jazz. Uh, really seems like a really nice kid, a really good teammate. But do you think there's part of it with his throwing limitations that the guy that they told all these recruits that they'd be th- 
catching balls from the next three to four years? You know, the guy they made the face of the program, they quit on four games in? Yes, yes. I, There's I no way that doesn't factor some Because you got to think about it, too. He came in with a lot of these dudes, right? Yes, uh, pretty much all of them. Yeah. So that, that, that plays into He it. came in with more. I, I don't think Moore's going anywhere. He's the damn focal point of the offense. I guess I could well, be. Yeah, well, hold on. Is he? What? Is, is Elijah Moore the focal point of the offense right now? Passing the football. Passing the football. If there, okay. I mean, look at his production this year compared to everybody else's. If there's someone that has not uh, not been slighted by Ole Miss's inability to throw the ball at him, is that fair? Yeah, I guess. You can't, like, you know he's unhappy with his offense, too, though. I'm sure, but I mean, how he, if he's got 50 grabs on the year. Like, I, I don't I like to know how many came after week four. I mean, I did. I asked him this last week if this is the kind of production he envisioned. He said, "Honestly, I envision more, but I'm a team guy." So, yeah. to, to your point, I, I I'm not saying he's happy, but like, man, if there's somebody that's going to tear up the SEC the next three years, even if there's a a rock throwing to him, it's probably him. Like, I, I guess yeah. that's kind of where I'm going. But point being, he uh, Corral came in with more. Corral came in with Gregory. Corral came in with Battle. Like, yep. a bunch of these dudes. Uh, yeah. And now they pulled the plug on him. That probably isn't to a lesser degree. Tyler Knight. Yeah, um, uh, and so they pulled the plug on this guy four games in, and they even if you're a battle, I, and I'm, I'm just speaking completely out. Of, if I were in their shoes, completely hypothetical. I don't know any of this to be true. But even if I were a battle and say I just kind of like liked Plumley's charisma more, it would still kind of irk me this kind of sudden and drastic change offensively that they've gone to. That yeah, it, yeah, I I absolutely agree. I was talking to this about this to somebody the other day. We're in complete agreement that, that the offense that they ran the first four games is not the same offense that they've run the past six games, right? Yes, because it's who's playing quarterback. Okay, so what I'm getting at is you had to have two different schemes going in fall camp, right? Because they didn't just throw this in in a week. Um... No, I well, no, I, I think, I think that it's, I mean, they didn't change completely schemes, but they, well, I, I don't know how to answer that because I don't know what they're doing in practice and I don't know their scheme, but I imagine just they are calling the offense much differently because of the way Plumlee's at quarterback. I'm not sure it's just some kind of new scheme they implemented in a week, but I think the offense is co- being called very differently than it would be with Corral in the game. I'm not sure if it's... you, in- you think these plays were... And I'm seriously asking, you think the plays they're running now were within the offense when Corral was the, the starter? Yes, because I think Corral can run, but I think they're being called more often and they probably branched out a decent bit once they went to Plumlee because Plumlee just is a runner. It is amazing Matt Luke's inability to answer the question that everybody asked him. I told you to go back and look at that Monday press conference on Saturday of that question I asked him, and I don't know if you did or not, and I don't even necessarily mean this in like a malicious or slight way, but Matt Luke has a really, really, really nice talent for taking your question, looking like he understands exactly what you say, and then not answering it at all. <laughs> not answering I mean, it in the they, they, slightest. They basically asked him at this point, um, what do you see in John Rice formally to make him be the starting quarterback? And he does not answer. I asked him last week, point blank, given how badly you guys have struggled to throw the ball, this was after Auburn, was there any, con- and what Matt Corral did off the bench against both Texas A&M and Missouri, 
Because remember the last drive against Missouri, he made three or four really nice throws. He comes in, made the two throws in the A&M game to Braylon Sanders that, granted, both got overturned. Kind of questionable overturns, but doesn't really matter. Like, you get my point. Was there any consideration to playing him more? And he went on some tangent about how well John Rice Plumley runs and how well he did on the last drive and how close they are to winning games. Didn't mention Matt Corral one time in the answer. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, if you're looking, if you see this mass exodus of receivers and talent attrition, in addition to the two four-star, the four-star quarterback Grant Tisdale that left, and probably Matt Corral, if we're being completely honest, um, yeah. Like, if that alarms you, if you're an Ole Miss fan, then it, it probably should. I mean, this offense is running pretty talented dudes off. To me, honestly, I was texting Borky about this late last night after I got home from the basketball game because he got sent the same battle screenshot as well. This, the way this has gone down the last month is just completely insane to me. Like, how is there no one in the room? How is it not Matt Luke looking around and being like, hey, actually, this, 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 could, this is getting off the rails pretty quickly. This is probably not a great idea. <laughs> and and my, my worry is you're going to lose all these receivers, right? How in the world are you going to replace them? Seriously, like, how do you recruit a receiver to this offense? I mean, you don't. It kind of looks like Mississippi State the last, uh, the, I mean, particularly the the latter years well, of Mullen, right? Yeah, but, I mean, Mullen always threw the football more than this. Now, he wanted to run the football, and I get all that, but he even let Fitzgerald throw more than this. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to argue, but, like, I think there was probably a little bit of a reason. Fitzgerald, three-year starter, they really struggled to have wide receivers that were actually impact guys. That's a little bit of this and this, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't know how you get quality receivers to this offense. I, you know, if you don't have quality receivers, um, you, you first of all you can't throw the football because those guys aren't going to get separation, uh, and, and you can't win in this league without throwing the football. Um, everybody talks about Kentucky, but Kentucky's not winning football games with with this running back and quarterback. They beat Missouri, but they're not gonna, probably going to win again. Um, so it's just a, it's kind of harsh right now. Yeah, and so like, I mean, it, it, I've tried to, I've, I've, I've spent like a couple, I spent a little bit of time last night just kind of thinking about like a like an analogy to use on radio or whatever to use about what they're doing, and I can't really quite put my finger on what it is. But they're basically once they saw Plumley and his ability to run, they basically are saying they basically just kind of, and I, I think this is probably more Matt. Matt Luca allowing Rich Rod full autonomy and just allowing him to do this, but they're saying, "Damn it, we're going to win one way, and this is it." And by well, doing that, and the more headstrong and the more entrenched they get in this offensive philosophy, the more doors they're shutting in terms of other avenues to generate offense and win. And that comes in the form of you know a conventional forward pass, wide receivers, uh, other quarter like the two quarterbacks you're probably going to have lead. Like you're shutting so a lot of doors that you can't reopen. Whether it's Corral, the Tisdale door's already shut, the receiver's leaving. The more and more entrenched you get in with this and running the football and not really relying on other players other than running backs in the offense, a couple running backs in the offensive line some, this is shutting a lot of doors that you're not going to be able to reopen. I'm trying to think how to say this. I don't think Matt Luke is a dumb person. I just don't understand like what he's thinking here and, and how this is going to better equip him to keep this job. 
Like, I, I don't get that either. I, I don't understand I don't that think at he's all. An idiot, and that's what I don't understand. I mean, look in in this industry, hiring coaches is always a high risk, high reward deal. Matt Luke hired Mike McIntyre, which was universally seen as a really strong hire because Matt Mike McIntyre is seen as a guy who does a lot with a little and kind of builds well. And he doesn't have things implode. He doesn't have things go completely awry. Like, you know, look, he won at San Jose State. You know what you're doing if you win there. He won at Colorado. He didn't win huge, but he had that one big year, and, like, that was a very stable program for the most part under him. Weren't they even just, like, 5-7 and seven when they fired yeah, him? Yeah, yeah, they, they went 5-7, and seven like, two years. Yeah, and so, like, there's no real bottoming out. I mean, to, and to that effect, it was almost like the Mullen uh type deal where Mullen at State didn't really ever bottom out. Their lean years were five and seven, six and six. He's got a little bit of that in him. He hired Rich Rodriguez, which was seen at the time because of what all of Rich Rodriguez had accomplished in major college football as a pretty good hire. And I think that's naturally because, hey, this guy was coach at Michigan. He was a coach at West Virginia. He's a good offensive mind. And now he's going to step down and be a coordinator. Surely he can handle this. But it's looking at more and more like a miss. And that doesn't mean the hire wasn't justified. It's kind of like the Moorhead thing, where you look at the Moorhead hire in a vacuum when it happened, you think, that makes sense. That's a justifiable hire. That isn't crazy, like, I don't know, UConn hiring Randy Etzel a decade after the fact. That type of deal. Like, it's a justifiable hire, but sometimes you miss. I said this on the radio show the other day. There's a difference between a bad hire and a miss, and it's looking like more and more look like Rich Rodriguez is going to be a miss, and that could end up being the, uh, the, the thing that seals Matt Luke's fate. Is that fair? Yeah. If you're Matt Luke, let's just play a hypothetical. If you're Matt Luke today, what 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 do you do? Like, how how do you go about making sure you keep your job past this? You're going to get 2020. What like what do you do starting today to fix all of this? Well, I think I can tell you what he thinks he needs to do. He's going to go What's all that? in on this deal. They're going to. I don't know if they win the Egg Bowl, but John Rice Plumley, I think, is going to run wild on a really bad state front seven. I think they win the Egg Bowl. I'll just say that. Okay, I, I'm not sure if they do. I think they'll have a lot more offensive success than they've been having against good teams um, in the Egg Bowl, and I think they're going to spend the whole offseason selling the hell out of this, and it's going to be much easier if what you say comes true and they win. I think they got a good shot. I'm just not ready to be. I'm not ready to firmly, because I think State's probably a three-and-a-half to four-point favorite in that game. I do, too, but I think State's not going to be able to run the football on Ole Miss, and I'm going to need to see Tommy Stevens or Garrett Trader meet up the secondary before I believe it. That's fine. I don't necessarily disagree, but point being, I think they got a good shot. It's going to be a hell of a lot easier sell if they win, because no other rivalry in America yeah, puts more emotional capital into beating the other one than this thing. I mean, the man roaming the sidelines has his job because he beat State with a backup quarterback. Like, the rational things come from this game for whatever reason, and they're going to sell the hell out of this all off season, and they're going to ride into a daunting front end of a 2020 schedule with it being a very much a prove-it type season, him really having no room for error, and good luck, man. This offense better work. I, I they, this, That's where this is headed, is it not? Yeah, and I think, frankly, and, and this may be a little premature, me speaking about this, I think there's a chance that if he loses that Baylor game, that this is over. Because I don't know how you lose the Baylor and then respond by beating LSU, Auburn, Alabama, or Florida. Like, I don't see what, what, what world that happens in. Yep, I, I, I certainly agree. So, anyway, that's it. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit more uh, maybe on 
We'll get into it some on Friday with Mailbag Friday. Uh, I'll get into it some with Brody Miller again, but I don't know. It'll be interesting. It's really hard to talk about one single game with this team because I feel like for the last seven weeks, everything I've written post game has been big picture stuff. But that's really kind of where this whole thing is. That Matt Luke's entire tenure here has felt like a big picture thing. So that's kind of where we're headed with this. I think that's where this is going, and I think it's just a matter of like, I mean, I- I'm not going to call this a train wreck yet. But there's a train uh, garnering a ton of speed going down the tracks, and you kind of think you know where this is going to end and how it's going to end, but there's a chance it stays railed, I guess, is the best way to describe it. There's a chance everybody, or most everybody, is wrong about John Wright's fumbling, and this works out. Yeah, but like... I don't think the chance is high, but there's certainly a chance. My point being is everyone sees this train moving, and you know there's no stopping it. You're just trying to figure out what the end result is here. (laughs) So... Anyway, before we wrap up, uh, do you have the LB's pick'em results? Yes, I do. Uh, I have. I don't have them uh, for last week individually, but I have the, the records through week. What is it? Twelve of college football. Yeah. Uh, you had a good week. You caught up like four games on me. I am sixty-five and seventy-nine. You are sixty-three and eighty-one, and Greg is fifty-eight and forty-six. So Greg had another losing week. He did. He did. The, uh, the, the the numbers are catching up with Greg. Well. Don't we, make it money, though. Yeah, I mean, we've dubbed him the meat sharp. He, he probably needs to get back on his game because I, I <laughs> hope there aren't people taking his picks and losing because uh, they might go into his store in anarchy. But LB's pick them. Go to LB's best place in Oxford by far to get meat. University Avenue across from Kroger. Grilling season, weather's getting colder, holiday season's coming up. Go throw something good on the grill. Let Greg show you. They've got steaks, custom cuts, all kinds of specialized meat cuts. They've got uh, daily specials, plate lunches, all kinds of stuff. Go see him, University Avenue across from Kroger. Uh, really glad we have a partnership with Greg. It's the best, LB's is the best place in, around to get meat. Oxford area, Mississippi, anywhere. Uh, LB's is the place you want to go. Go by and get some lunch if you're hungry there one day. He's always got something good cooking in the kitchen. Uh, let's make a couple quick Thursday picks, get to the Astros thing, and get out of here because i got to call Bracken. <laughs> All right, I will, uh, I'll pull up the uh, football line. We have, a, we have a game tonight. What is it? Let's see. We have maybe two games tonight. Hold uh, on. Oh, Maxion? Yeah, yeah. Toledo weighing two and a half at home against Northern Illinois. Um, uh, Whatever, Toledo. I'm taking Northern Illinois. Uh, Miami of Ohio is laying 17 at home against Bowling Green. Bowling Green, because weird stuff happens in the MAC. They're probably terrible based off that line, but I don't care. Yeah, they'll probably win or something, though. Uh, Thursday game, uh, college Pittsburgh minus four and a half, hosting North Carolina. Uh, North Carolina probably pretty decent at home. I'll go with Longo and the boys. It's at Pitt, but yeah, I'm still taking North Carolina. Oh, it's at Pitt? Yeah. Uh, whatever. Longo, go. Fight, fight Longo. Uh, Baker Mayfield is, is laying three at home against the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. Oh, my God, what a gross game. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take the uh, Browns. This has disaster written all over it. Because the Browns. Buddy, I, I just said out loud, I'm going to bet. Well, I'm going to pick uh, Freddie Kitchens to beat Mike Tomlin. Yeah, because the, the the Steelers have won five in a row or four in a row. Have just beat they just beat the uh, the Rams. They beat the Chargers. I'm going to go with the Steelers on this year. In fact, I don't even think Mason Rudolph's any good. 
I don't know how the Rams are really, I mean, how the Steelers are really doing this, but I think Baker Mayfield's going to have seven turnovers. The Browns are going to be a disaster, and I'm taking Tomlin. Boy, you sure would hate to see that. Yeah, I, I, the Browns are the worst coach football team in the NFL, and it, it's not close. They are a complete offensive clown show. I mean, it was so perfect. They scored their first touchdown against Buffalo the other day, and they got a taunting penalty. Like, that is the, them in a nutshell. Well, my favorite was they ran eight plays from the two-yard line and couldn't score. Yeah, I mean, they're they're just a disaster. I don't know how in any uh, how any way possible that you could take the Browns. So, anyway, um, good luck with that. Um, yeah. We'll get into the meats of the LBs. Pick them on Friday. We'll have Greg's picks. We'll go through some SEC games. Some weekend action, and then uh, run through the NFL as we do as always. So uh, fade us if you will. Um, last thing we'll get into before we get out of here: the Astros have been caught stealing signs electronically. In a bombshell article that came from, I believe, Ken Rosenthal and Evan Drellick from the Athletic, it uh, basically detailed a pretty much something that's been going on for the two years, where the Astros are stealing signs uh, with like. Basically, it's having to. It has to happen with uh, cameras, which is uh, 100% illegal if you use electronic technology to steal signs. Obviously, you can steal signs with your eyes and stuff like that. That's kind of part of the game. But the Astros have been stealing signs through what appears would have to be some kind of camera thing for the last two years. Uh, I don't know. There's a video circulating the internet of a guy who uh, uh, White Sox pitcher Danny Farquad was quoted in the story, and this guy went back and found the video of the game Farquad is talking about. And basically what is happening is every time they signal change up, there's this banging noise coming from the dugout. And there's basically someone in the dugout hallway uh, between the dugout and the clubhouse watching it on a TV monitor, watching the signs, and basically giving out signals in the form of noises in the stadium um, so they know what pitch is coming, which is just wild to me. Everybody's got to be fired, right? Well, I mean, they won't do that. I mean, you've got to. You're blatantly cheating. They know they're in on it. How in the world is everyone not touched? You're gonna, <laughs> what? You but, think uh, A.J. Hinch has gone over this? I think so. Like, how, how do you justify this? I mean, I don't I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it took him two weeks to fire that uh, assistant GM that had the whole, um, I'm so glad we got Ozuna thing. I, I, maybe I don't see that that necessarily happening, but I mean I think they should. I guess is what I'm agreeing with you, but I'm skeptical it'll happen. I guess is where I'm going with that. But then you even Boy, had, AJ Hinch looks pompous as hell after this, right? Because he, he got all pissy when people would call him out. Yeah, he got mad. The new the Yankees complained in the ALCS of a uh, of um of the, the Astros whistling, whist- whistling in the dugout. Uh, in terms of them stealing signs, and you know, AJ Hinch acted like they were basically just some crazy people making an accusation, and basically called them thin skin. And of course, it yeah. was a hundred percent true. He knew it was true, and they've been doing it for years. Yeah, this this tanks the World Series that they won, like extremely. Like you can't vacate it. And I get all that, but. You, you kind of view this era in a different light for them, right? Man, they ruined you, Darvish, by cheating. You Darvish yes. still has not recovered from this. You Darvish had two starts in the World Series, and what he got five outs. I mean, that yeah. ruined his yeah, confidence. Yeah, and you're talking about a really likable guy, and you Darvish who took a lot. Speaking of which, have you seen the video of him? No, what? He's throwing with his left hand, and it's still like eighty-nine to ninety. 
Uh, that's uh, that's impressive. Hugh Darvish is a guy. Uh, if you ever actually go follow his Twitter or like actually read oh, some off. of the stuff he does post game, very funny, very smart guy with a good sense of humor. But man, he got crushed by the LA media. It really kind of loomed with him the next year when he signed with Chicago over this. I thought some of it was maybe him still coming off injury, but like it really ruined a significant piece of his career and what he'll forever be known for by really what is just blatant cheating. Yeah. They knew what was coming. Yeah, that I mean, makes they, it a lot easier. Yeah. And, you know, the Dodgers win that game five that, that Kershaw started, and that series is over, and you just have to think back, like, how in the world did, does that go if they don't know what pitch is coming? Right. So, crazy story. Uh, the Astros have very quickly become a really, really unlikable they're, team. In they're the most hateable team in baseball right now, right? But, like, three months ago, you wouldn't have said that. No, they were all likable, but they are quickly like I. I two like months, two Yankees months ago, you wouldn't stuff. have said that. The Yankees are really likable. Yeah, two months ago, you wouldn't have said this. <laughs> you wouldn't have said this before the first game of the World Series. I mean, they were like a little bit arrogant, and they knew how good they were. But like some, there was a little bit of a likable quality even in that. But now it's just like I'm, I'm sick of them. This is. I, I hope I don't know what you, kind of penalizing you can do, but I hope they get the brunt of it. I. You know, what somebody mentioned that a good punishment would be is limit their free agent spending. You want to talk about a punishment where they can't re-sign Springer or uh, Correa or they can't extend Bregman past what he already is? Do that. That'll send the message. Yeah, so, I don't know, really uh, really kind of shocking and fascinating story there if you want to go read it on The Athletic, and I'm sure you can find that video easily. I'm curious here real quick. Does, they haven't announced MVP, right? Uh, I have not, honestly, I have not kept up the last two I don't two days. think they have, this, this has to taint Bregman's case, right? Yeah, probably a little bit. Jeez. So, I don't know. It's a, uh, when is the MVP announced? I'm not sure. They were announcing a lot of stuff yesterday, so maybe today. I guess we'll have like, to wait Joe and see. Like, Coach of the Year, uh, Saldelli at Minnesota won Coach of the Year. Uh, Alonzo won Rookie of the Year in the NL. I don't know who won in the AL. I can't remember. I'm thinking Alvarez probably did. A- unanimously. Yeah, yeah, Alvarez did. So that tanked some of what he did. Yeah, so, I don't know. Fascinating story. You should go read it at The Athletic. Uh, definitely. Stein Sealing has been a thing in baseball for years. Astros probably aren't the only team. But, man, using electronics and doing it this blatantly and arrogantly is uh, pretty wild. Anyway... We got to wrap up today. We'll have uh, Mailback Friday. The People's Holiday is back. Uh, I just scolded everyone two weeks ago, and we got a hell of a response in terms of questions. So I appreciate everyone's feedback. Send me your questions. Uh, participate in the People's Holiday. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.